Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and this month's episode is all about the science of music. This is Hannah Peel. dreaming was a look at the way my grandmother fell into dementia and as an artist and as a person how I emotionally dealt with that by obviously dealing with and witnessing it but also seeing my family go through that. She could not remember us or where she was and was really living a kind of cocoon solitary confinement in her own mind because she started to lose the power to really kind of communicate and was very sleepy a lot of the time. But one Christmas, just before sadly she passed away, we decided to just sing some carols after something I'd read online about music and I thought, oh, why not? Should we just try it? So we started singing carols and, and from a very slumber sleep in a chair she just woke up and started singing and the lyrics came to her and she sang along until she just got too tired and she stopped and it was one of the most breathtaking life-changing moments I've ever had. Now, the science of music is a huge topic. There is just so much we could cover. There's the evolutionary role of music. There's music in healthcare and the more recent discoveries that we've made through MRI scans enabling us to see how our brains are reacting to the music. We've long understood that music is incredibly powerful. And what can science tell us about that? But I also want to look at how science can inspire music. And more on that from Hannah Peel later in the podcast. I met Hannah Peel at Cheltenham Science Festival, which is where Physics World sent me off to record this month's podcast. And one of the themes of this year's festival is the science of music. There are big marquees on the lawns outside Cheltenham Town Hall filled with people at science lectures, science talks, science demonstrations. And inside the Town Hall itself, the big exhibition space with all sorts of demonstrations and scientists engaging with the public. And down one of the corridors in Cheltenham Town Hall, I met up with Dallas Campbell, a TV presenter, science communicator, and one of the co-directors of this year's Cheltenham Science Festival. So we'll meet myself and Ellen Stofan, right? This is where I get terrible imposter syndrome because uh, like Ellen, Ellen Stofan was the head science, scientist at NASA, and I should point out that I, I've never been the head scientist at NASA, <laughs> or indeed any Yet. scientist ever. So, uh, so, so, you know, at no point have I been a scientist. I, yeah. I love this festival. Yeah. It's an incredibly important festival. I think anyone who comes here knows how important it is, particularly actually being here. We're sitting in the green room, and this space where scientists from all kinds of disciplines come together and meet and talk and share ideas and... Careers have been made here, and presumably careers have ended here. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a terrific place, John. The science of music, music is such a fundamental part of human nature. Across all cultures uh, have always had music and presumably will always have music, and why that is is, is of interest. Uh, the way that, you know, as a physicist, the way that 
music works is of interest and how we respond to it is, is of interest. Historically, it's so fascinating. Actually, I'm looking at your pioneer plaque T-shirt, and um, it was interesting, of course, when Carl Sagan and Frank Drake and Andrew and the others put together their John Lombard put together the, the the famous golden record on the Voyager spacecraft, which came after Pioneer. But they would choose music as perhaps how else would we best sum up what it is to be a human being and of course music along with images was one of those things it's a universal thing that unites all human beings and dr mark looney is a physicist who studied the physics of acoustics of guitars and he's no stranger to the institute of physics here he is on the institute of physics school's lecture tour back in 2008 Hello, my name is Dr. Looney. That is my real name. Uh, yes, I have been told I should go into psychiatry. Simple physics is all you need to explain the vibrations of what is really just a piece of wood, uh, but which can still produce these beautiful frequencies which affect our minds so. Now, when I play a guitar here, you can't see the vibrations. All you can do is hear the sounds that those vibrations produce. So in my research, uh, we used holography, lasers, uh, to illuminate the guitar. And in that way, you can actually see the patterns of vibration of the guitar, which allow us to understand how those sounds are produced, which frequencies uh, come from those uh, modes of vibration of the guitar body uh, in order to produce the sounds we hear. To understand the sound of rock guitar first, you've got to look at the string. I'd like you to think of a string as a kind of stretched out spring. Now, the frequency of the simple side-to-side -side vibrations of a string or a stretched spring, what's called the fundamental frequency, depends on three things. Firstly, the length. The shorter, the higher. When I put my finger on a fret, I effectively shorten the length of the string so the frequency rises. Secondly, tension. The looser, the lower. When I press down my whammy bar, I decrease the tension in the string, so the frequency drops. And finally, thickness. All of these strings are the same length and the same tension, it's just the lower-pitched ones are thicker. And to get really low notes, they've got to be really thick, which curiously also applies to bassists. I met up with Dr Looney at Cheltenham Science Festival just before his talk entitled Can Science Explain Music? And I began by asking him that very question. Yes, it can. It depends on what point you say, right, I'm happy with that, I'm satisfied with that. If you look at the science of anything at all, there are still questions, right? There's, science can't explain anything perfectly. If the existence of one imperfection is enough for you to say, science can't explain that, then, well, that's it. I can't really talk to you then, can it? Science can't explain anything at all then. Okay. Uh, music is, of course, one of those things that most people would say, oh, there's so many enormous gaps that, you know, you just haven't got a hope. It will never ex explain that. Uh, and I'm never going to do that in just the 15 minutes I'm allotted tonight <laughs> to set forth my argument. What I do is I give examples of different kinds of scientific explanation. We have the kind of equation on a T-shirt explanation of physics, where you get an equation. Uh, that's what musical acoustics is all about, ending up with an actual predictive equation. 
some systems are too complex for that. Um, so if you imagine a pendulum, you've got an equation for that. If you put a hinge in the middle of the pendulum, you get a chaotic pendulum. Now, no one would say that hinged pendulums have no scientific explanation. But you still you can't quite get an equation anymore. You can move to a different kind of explanation. If you look at the explanation for our auditory sensors, our inner ear, that is very strongly explained by evolutionary biology. Even though creationists used to use the bones of the inner ear as an argument for God, they just couldn't see the tiny steps that produced that physiology. Then if you ask, well, what about the processor that those signals are sent to, the brain? Then yes, we're getting more philosophical. Uh, we're looking towards psychology rather than physiology. But psychology does still have its own scientific explanations. So I give examples of different, uh, these different kinds of explanation to different aspects of music. Uh, culminating, of course, in why have we got music at all? Why do we do it in the first place? Which I would argue uh, comes directly from the cognitive mechanisms necessary to be emotionally affected by speech, actually. So when I'm talking to you right now, it's not just a dull monotone where you're listening to the words. You're listening to the modulations in my voice. I, I try and make it an interesting thing to listen to with my voice right now uh, a lot of those cognitive mechanisms are what are triggered when we listen to music so perhaps we shouldn't be all that surprised that in a, a cognitive being that can be emotionally affected by sounds that each other make that we are also affected by kind of purer forms of those sounds that you can argue music is so there's a load of different kinds of scientific explanation. Uh, I think science is there enough now that I can go, right, there's still gaps, but overall I'm kind of happy that there is no major, mysterious, woo, <laughs> weird thing that has to come along to suddenly provide the explanation for other aspects of music. Fueled by part of what Mark said there, I met up with Professor Alice Roberts, who's a medical doctor, an academic, professor of public engagement in science at the University of Birmingham, and the author of several books on evolution. Why do we have music? Is there, is, does it have an evolutionary role? This is a fantastic question, and this is something that I was exploring here at Cheltenham Science Festival, but with the wonderful archaeologist and anthropologist Steve Mythen, who's based at the University of Reading, and his work spans um, a huge amount of, of, of human prehistory, but he's particularly interested in what he calls cognitive archaeology, so trying to understand the minds of our ancestors. Um, and obviously a part of that is trying to understand how important things like music and art were to them. And Steve made a very coherent argument that language itself, language as we know it, could have emerged from a musical background. So he argues that earlier hominins were musical, that they were singing to each other. He's written a wonderful book called The Singing Neanderthals. But he says that modern humans are, are different because of our spoken language 
and he thinks that that is something unique and that's something which is different from those those other hominins but he thinks that spoken language emerged from music if he's right about that this is really important because it means that music is much more than just a sort of an add-on and something that makes us feel good and perhaps gives us a bit of a relief and a bit of escape from everyday life it means that it's actually pretty intrinsic to how we first started communicating with each other mm. is it is it something that separates us from all other animals that, that you know of well in a way he argues not um it does depend how you define it so certainly um you know steve mythen's view of uh music and human evolution um is not without its detractors and there are there are a lot of uh, different ideas about uh, where music comes from and if if steve mythen is right and if his if his if the way he defines music is right then actually um music is there in a lot of other animals as well and so I suppose it, dep- it does depend how you define it. If you define it as a form of communication in which you're using changes in pitch to communicate between one creature and another, then there's plenty of animals that do that. I mean, most obviously birds and it is that music that they're producing um, or, or do we somehow take something away from them if we, if we don't allow it to be music whale song, is that, is that music? Um, and, and, and I think that if we, if we allow those examples from, from other animals to be music, then actually we start to see how music could have started off as a really important form of communication because that's what we understand it to be in those, in those other creatures. Now, the person, Dr Mark Looney, who we heard from earlier, was going up against in that talk about can science explain music was Professor Raymond Tallis. Now, Raymond Tallis is a philosopher, a neuroscientist an author and I began by asking him that question what can science what can physics what can maths tell us about music there are indeed mathematical patterns in music but there are mathematical patterns in pretty well everything and I think a lot of um, mathematicians who are themselves musically gifted are quite skeptical that the solution to or understanding of music is understanding it as a set of mathematical patterns you can see mathematical patterns in crystals You can see mathematical patterns in all sorts of things. So that wouldn't show what is distinctive about music. Music has a huge cultural dimension, both in our collective lives and also in our individual lives. And that's true uh, of someone like myself, whose taste in music has changed with time. Fifty years ago, I was besotted by Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. If I could, if I heard it now, I'd switch off the, you know, the television or the radio, or whatever. So there is a huge cultural dimension to music, which wouldn't be captured by mathematical patterns. It's very true to say that in music and indeed other arts, form is very important. But that's not the only thing. Take, for example, the experience of a symphony. You can see formal elements in it, but the overall experience of symphony is a kind of journey that's not reduced to some mathematical pattern. And by the way, you've got to remember a pattern is something that's static, whereas all the arts are about unfolding experiences. They're about narrative. Narratives that feed into the greater narratives of our lives. And it seems to me there are many reasons why neuroscience won't give us much insight into our appreciation of music, the significance of music in our lives, and indeed the process of creating music. But when it comes to appreciation of music, there's been lots of research looking at how the brain responds to various musical stimuli. And they show you the bits of the brain light up here and there. And, for example, a very famous study by Robert Zator said that when you have 
experience of shivers down the spine, there is a very specific part of the brain that lights up. He's very excited because this is a part of the brain that's associated with the reward pathways, with the particular neurotransmitter dopamine. Unfortunately, those same pathways light up uh, when you take cocaine or indeed when you have sex. As I'm sure you'll know, MRI scanners use protons which are abundant in the human body and all protons spin, creating a magnetic charge. When an MRI machine introduces a strong magnetic field to the human body, those protons align with the field and the MRI machine then releases a radio frequency pulse which forces the protons into a 90 or 180 degree alignment with that static magnetic field. When that radio frequency is turned off, the protons return to realign with the magnetic field and release electromagnetic energy in the process. That energy is then detected by the MRI, which can differentiate between the tissues in the body based on how quickly they release energy, and through that can then build up this image of the interior of the body. Now, while Professor Tallis remains sceptical about the insights MRI scans can give us about some aspects of the human experience of music, there have been a couple of studies which caught my eye. Charles Lim of the John Hopkins Hospital put jazz and rap artists into an MRI machine and found that those who are more proficient at improvising, able to improvise for longer, more easily, were somehow able to switch off the part of their brain which deals with self-monitoring. In other words, as I often say to my five-year-old daughter, don't worry about making mistakes. There's an article on nature.com by Wilkins and Burdett which seems to chime with what Raymond Tellus was saying because MRI scans show that the experience that you have when you listen to music that you like or don't like is, is the same experience that somebody else is having when they're listening to completely different music. The music itself doesn't change the experience, but the taste of the person listening to it does. In other words, when you're listening to a piece of music that you like, the part of your brain that's important for internally focused thoughts connects up in just the same way as it does for your friend listening to a completely different piece of music that they like. Our experience of music is highly subjective. So I asked the professor whether he felt that neuroscience would ever be able to answer some of those questions. If you think looking at brain responses is going to help you understand that mysterious experience you have when you listen to music, I think you're going to be very disappointed. Of course you can see how the brain responds to sounds, and indeed to melodies and patterns and so on, but that's far too general. Now, a lot of my friends who disagree with me on, on this say, well, hang on a moment. It's early days yet. We've only had MRI scans for 20 or 30 years. Give us another 100 years and we'll really know. And I said, well, let's have a thought experiment. Let's imagine we've got scans that were able to show you every single discharge of every neuron over the whole period of listening to a symphony. Or Beethoven's whole experience, the 10 years in which he wrote the Ninth Symphony. What would you get out of that? I'll tell you what you get out of it. You get lots of noughts and ones. Would that tell you anything about Beethoven's experiences of writing the Ninth Symphony or my experience of listening to it? I rest my case. So what can give you an insight into that? Is there anything that can? Listening to it, reflecting on your experience, having conversations with others, all those low-tech things like talking, I think they're a very good way of accessing what's going on. People are often feel that high-tech, there must always be a, the most advanced answers to questions must involve high technology. I know my own research, which was about stroke recovery, of course it did. 
But when it comes to understanding something profoundly human and engages our humanity, the kind of objective studies of the brain as a material object are really going to give us very little insight. We heard from Hannah Peel at the start of this podcast about the role that music played in communicating with her grandmother with dementia. And I also happen to be married to a musician who has a wide experience of using music. This is Jenny Glester. So I've seen music being powerful on many levels. I've, I've performed in front of um, thousands of people and seen the effect, the incredible unifying effect that it has on sort of on a whole concert hall full of people um, and all the musicians on stage and all the audience feel like they're going on this one journey together. And then I've also seen it on a much more um, intimate level in within hospitals in mental health settings where I've worked with service users with a range of mental health um, issues from um, schizophrenia and depression to dementia and music really touches them in a way that that often um, words just can't. They can't kind of communicate in the same way. Um, and it's it's deeply humbling watching the effect that music can have upon people who are very, very ill. Um, it can really make them feel part of something. Again, it unites them. It, it, it can bring a whole group of people who are within their tunnel-visioned world of their... Uh, illnesses that they're really suffering from it's very difficult to quantify you see that these people it's having a hugely positive effect on them but you can't say this is happening to them this is happening in their brain this is exactly what happened at that moment and it's been it's actually relieved their symptoms you sort of can't say it in the same way that you can if you've given them a drug or uh, some medication of some description it's not the same and it's incredibly hard because actually that's where a lot of the funding comes from. The the people who offer the funding are wanting quantifiable evidence and it's very difficult to gain that in these areas. But if they just came along, use your eyes. You can see it happening. Maybe we just don't need science to explain some aspects of the human experience of music. And maybe current science can't tell us that much about it. But I asked Dr. Mark Looney whether the science of acoustics could make better guitars, which turned out to be the wrong question. Right, you've hit on the exact word that we try and avoid in acoustics. Better. That is a subjective word. What we try and do in acoustics is we treat it as a piece of wood. All of our measurements have to be as objective as we can in order to compare data sets. So if you treat the guitar as a piece of wood with strings on, right, that's the starting point. The data that you get from a guitar, why does it sound like it does? Um, again, yes, you can explain an awful lot about that. That is in no way to downplay the skill of a good guitar maker. Uh, just because I've got a scientific understanding of it, you tell me to make a guitar, uh, I'll be sticking stuff all over the place, I'll cut stuff wrong, I'll probably injure myself. Uh, that kind of knowledge doesn't inform, it doesn't mean I can make a better guitar, because it still needs an awful lot of skill. But uh, once you've got that kind of control, what we would talk about more is, can a scientific understanding of the guitar give us more control? over its tonal properties. That's a much more acoustics way of saying these things. 
uh, such that if a musician asked for certain tonal properties, we'd have a good idea of what to do to the structure of the guitar to actually deliver those properties. Now, if that musician went, that's a better guitar for me, all well and good. We've, we've kind of hit okay. his, his or her bases. Now, there's been a huge amount of music over the years that's been inspired by science. And at the start of this podcast, I promised you some more Hannah Peel. This is her latest single, Sunrise Through the Dusty Nebula. been interested in science as a kid anyway but actually that the next album I'm doing comes out in September and that is then a journey from the mind into space and so so the the next few angles are all about how the comparisons between the brain and space and how we right. okay. so so there's an, another set of things that are now happening yeah. how, how how do you go from the mind into space what do you mean um I think one of the the most fascinating things that I found out of the Wait But Always Dreaming project or album was when I went to see Selena, who was one of the lead scientists at UCL in research for dementia and Alzheimer's, and she she builds um, brain neurons in petri dishes. And when I looked down the microscope, the brain neurons looked like you were just looking at the universe, and it was so incredible to see and it just looked like you were looking at the star constellations and and you know I think I said to her out loud I said oh my god it's space and just that comparison from a tiny little neuron to the stars and then just delving into what that means so and 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 reading books on theoretical physics and string theories and and everything else around that just to try and get a sense so um i was writing for uh sounds quite mad but i was writing for a colliery brass band in yorkshire and um they'd commissioned me to write a piece of music with synthesizers and brass and so i decided to base it on a, a character of a lady just someone that i'd made up that was a lady that was a, a composer Nobody knew about her, but she was a massive stargazer. She'd never left her home in Yorkshire. Um, she worked in her back garden shed, and she was called Mary Cassio. And she had dreams always of going to Cassiopeia. So um, so she goes on this journey to Cassiopeia in her late 80s, <laughs> leaves Yorkshire. And when I was writing the music, it became very apparent that maybe not necessarily that she had gone on that journey reality is was she really on that journey or was she sat in her in her day chair kind of dreaming of that mission or is this more her last dying breath into another realm that we just don't know um so it's very open-ended the music ends with something that really evokes that question I'm sure if you're anything like me, you can't wait for that album to come out. And I heard it in its entirety at the Blue Dot Festival at Jodrell Bank this last weekend. And it is phenomenal. Thank you so much to Hannah Peel, Professor Raymond Tallis, Professor Alice Roberts, 
Dr. Mark Looney, Dallas Campbell, and of course, Jenny Glester for talking to me. And thank you for listening. Physics World.